This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. Our guest today, uh, you have heard me mention her name uh, many times. She's been a guest on the television show. Uh, Not that many people read either one of my books, but if you did read my book, you would have seen her name there, too. She's one of my favorite. I don't want to just say colleagues. She's one of my favorite people. We sat on opposite sides of the aisles, what most people would tell you, although I sat with her a lot because there are no assigned seats in Congress. Tulsi Gabbard got into politics when she was really, really, really young. She's actually still really, really, really young. But she got in at like an age when most of us weren't thinking about politics, has had an incredible career. Uh, But I want to talk to her about more than just politics. Uh, If you listen to this podcast, you know I am fascinated by how people got where they are and why they wanted to get there. So with that, aloha, Tulsi Gowdy. Aloha. How are you? I am good, Trey Gowdy. It's good to talk to you. It's great to hear your voice. And I wish I wish we got a chance to hang out more. You know, I, I, I actually, there are very few things I miss about Congress, but one of the few things that I miss is being able to go and sit on the House floor uh, with you and talk story, as we say in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> well, or... Or better yet, practice kind of amateur clinical psychology and figure out how in the world <laughs> can any human being think like that? But you were so yeah. polite. You never really said that. No, no. I thought you were referring to us sitting there and talking about the insanity happening around us, actually. Oh, well, <laughs> you know what I want to start with? I am fascinated by younger versions of what we all know. I mean, you're a household name. People know who you are and what you've done. Young Tulsi Gabbard, tell us what she was like. Uh, Let's see. Well, I was born in American Samoa. I am the fourth of five kids, and uh, my parents moved to Hawaii when I was two years old. So Hawaii's pretty much been home for me uh, throughout my life. And um I, my parents are teachers, uh, teachers by trade and training. They chose to homeschool us as kids. And uh, so, you know, growing up with my brothers and my younger sister and rough and tumble household, never, ever a dull moment. It was really in my childhood where I found my purpose in life, frankly. It laid the foundation for uh, the path that I have taken uh, with my life. And that was just you know, even as a kid, you know, my parents would, would we'd go and pick up trash off the beaches on the weekends. And, you know, we'd go and um, uh, make plates of food and give them out to, to homeless people in the park by where we lived. And, and I just found that I was, I was always happiest when I was doing things for other people. And that was something that I knew that I wanted to continue 
to do with my life. I had no idea what shape or form that would take exactly, but, um, that's what I knew. And, and I, and I also understood that life is short, that the time that we have here, and I'm grateful to have had this realization, you know, I don't know, I was 11 or 12 years old. I just, I just knew that, um, the time that I have in this body and, and in this place is short and who knows how long, um, I would have, but I felt this sense of urgency, uh, to make the most of my life understanding, like I'm a child of God and the best way that I can be successful in my life is to do my best to be pleasing to God. And what better way to be pleasing to God than to, uh, do my best to be of service to God's children and to be a good caretaker for, um, this planet, this place that, uh, that we live in. You sound like a minister. Uh, the difference being, um, I, I believe that you believe every word that you just said. It's That's true. how I would distinguish. I mean, <laughs> I, I, people that know you are not surprised that you said that. I think people who maybe don't know you, that's not the first thing they think when they think someone who went into politics. Tulsi, I mean, I don't know where I was when I was in my early 20s, probably like one step ahead of the law, maybe half a step. <laughs> what possessed you? It sounds like you had an idyllic upbringing and then you went and chanced it all by running. I mean, you you were in like your <laughs> 20s, weren't you, when you ran for the I Hawaii State Legislature? What I was possessed 21. you to do that? <laughs> that? A lot of my friends asked me that. <laughs> um, well, I was 21 and uh, I decided to run for the state house. And for me, it was... I, growing up in Hawaii, you know, I, I loved being in the ocean more than I was comfortable being on land. I loved surfing and being outdoors and, and just appreciating, um, appreciating our home. And, uh, I understood that, um, my own having fun came with responsibility and that responsibility is, uh, to, to be a caretaker. And that, that was really what sparked my interest in, in getting involved and, and trying to find ways to, um, to be a good caretaker. And, and there were, there were a number of different things, you know, I, I, I co-founded, a, 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 an environmental nonprofit, um, I don't know, 17 or so called healthy Hawaii coalition and created this program that we took out to elementary school students, um, all across the state. And I had so much fun, uh, hanging out with these kids and just talking to them about some of the basics of like, Hey, you know, when you're driving down the street and you know, you, you've eaten a bag of chips and you throw your bag of chips outside the window of your car, like this is where it ends up. You know, you, you like when playing the water and just the basics, like there are consequences to the actions that you take. And, um, seeing that, that kind of light spark in their eyes was just the, the coolest thing, seeing that they actually understood what I was talking about. Um, there, there were other, other things that we, um, we did to, uh, organize, get petitions signed to stop a landfill from being built over one of the biggest water aquifers on our Island, water that serves almost a third of the population, um, on our Island and going through that, standing outside the grocery store as a teenager, you know, getting these signatures and then seeing how corrupt politicians were trying to grease the wheels to fast track this landfill project for their buddies. 
even though they recognize, man, like that landfill starts leaching toxins down into the groundwater. That's a bad deal because we live on an island and that is where our water comes from. We can't truck it in from anywhere else. Um, so we stopped it. We stopped it from happening. And uh, it was an inspiring moment to see how to, how to make that change. And that's, that's why I ran for state house uh, because I saw an opportunity. Well, Hey, I can stand on the outside and talk about it or I could go to school. I, I didn't have a bachelor's degree at the time. I had started going to community college, but I could go and sit in a classroom and listen to a political science professor and have, you know, philosophical discussions and debates, or I could actually just go and try to actually do something. Uh, and, and so I did. All right. I want to ask you a question that kind of morphs your love of your home with uh, the job where I met you. You, you represent, represented a state that many people would forego their braces on their kids' teeth to go visit. Uh, they <laughs> would, I mean, they would do anything to go visit your state. It is perceived as being just incredibly beautiful. And yet you had to get on a plane and fly for God knows how long to go to Washington, D.C., and I just want you to give people a sense. I mean, they kind of laugh when we use the phrase public servant. Mm -hmm. I felt sorry for the people that lived in Hawaii, uh, in California, because of the length of their travel. Tell us what your life was like trying to represent Hawaii, but also make it in time for votes. Uh, yeah, logistics and commuting to work takes on a whole different picture uh, when you're talking about literally traveling, I don't know, 2,600 miles one way uh, to get from, you know, my home in Hawaii to Washington, DC. And so it, um, you, you know, I did my best to make the most of the time, uh, all of it, uh, both the time that I had at home, I went back and forth probably at least a couple times a month. I wasn't able to get back every single weekend, like most people, uh, because I'd end up being in the air more than I'd, I'd actually be at home, but, um, making, making the most of the time, uh, it never got easy. So I served in Congress for eight years with you and I, um, it never got easier to leave Hawaii, but I always, you know, the reason I did, I, I understood my purpose. Uh, I never forgot you know, why I ran for Congress in the first place, which really came from the experience that I had as a soldier. You know, I enlisted because of 9-11, uh, because I felt uh, a sense of responsibility and duty and call to action to, uh, to serve our country and to go after those who attacked us on that day. I also was committed to serving our state, so enlisted in the, the National Guard and then uh, our unit was was activated very quickly uh, after I got back from basic training, and uh, I was I was not on the mandatory deployment roster because the job I was trained in in the medical unit was already filled by someone else. And so my commander called me and he said, "Hey, Tulsi, um, good news! You don't have to go to Iraq with us." This was um, this was in kind of the summer of two thousand four. And I said, well, what do you mean, sir? He's like, yeah, you don't have to go. So-and-so is going to fill, she's already filled a position. And, and so you're set, you can stay home. And I was campaigning for reelection to the state house at the time. And uh, I just, I knew there was no way I could stay back. 
I knew there was no way that I could stand there on the you know tarmac and wave goodbye to my fellow soldiers and my friends as they shipped off to war on the other side of the world. And so um, I told my commander, no, <laughs> there's no way I'm staying back. And he understood after a few minutes of talking that I meant it. <laughs> um, so I, I, I withdrew from my reelection campaign and ended up uh, getting retrained in a different job that they needed filling in that medical unit. And uh, we deployed, we were in Iraq for a year in, in a place in the country at that time, uh, was taking a lot of casualties. It was about 40 miles North of Baghdad in 2005 and, uh, working in a medical unit, um, every day was just as we all were confronted with the high cost of war. Um, it was my, my daily task every single morning to go through a list of names of servicemen and women who had been injured or harmed uh, in, in battle the day before and to go through and make sure that any of our soldiers from our brigade combat team, basically to make sure that they were getting the care that they needed either to return to duty or to make sure that they actually got all the way back home to their families. And, and every day um, it was a heavy moment every day, just sometimes seeing names on that list who were people who I knew personally, uh, people who may, may have been in a different place, uh, seeing many names of people I didn't know personally, but uh, knowing that, uh, you know, there are loved ones and family members back home, as I knew my parents were dreading having a phone call come to let them know that their son or their daughter, or their brother, sister, husband, or wife had been injured or, or worse killed. It was a reminder again about how temporary this life is and um, to make the most of it, you know, that, that this is not our real home. We are eternal spirits. Uh, we are eternal souls, the children of God, and we have this short window of time here in this life and uh, to make the most of it. And, and coming back from that deployment, that first deployment, I knew that I wanted to be in a position to, to do something, to have influence, to be able to help make the decisions about our foreign policy, about our men and women in uniform and our veterans, recognizing um, that so many of our politicians uh, either don't know, like they're not aware of the consequences of the decisions that they're making and the, the toll that it takes and the cost on human life and on our national security, um, or worse, they know, but they don't care. And so, uh, I didn't again, know exactly how or where I'd find a way to be able to be impactful in that. But ultimately that was, uh, compounded by my experience in my second deployment and ultimately what led me to run for Congress. And it's what I carried and carry with me every day that I get on the plane and leave my home, that I go to Washington or that I go to other places to, to continue to, uh, to try to be of service and to try to bring about um, this kind of positive change. And just so our listeners are clear, your service in uniform is not in the past tense. It is in the present tense. You you continue to serve. And yes. And, and I do wonder, Tulsi, I, Seth Moulton was on with me not long ago. Mike Gallagher was not on was on not that long ago. I do wonder 
if everyone who made decisions about war also had to wage those wars, what the difference would be. I mentioned you, Seth and Mike, because you all served in uniform. You currently serve. But I wonder, sending other people off to fight battles is very different from sending yourself off to fight battles. I wonder if our decision-making would be different if it were our sons and daughters, literally, or ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think without question, it would be different. Certainly bring uh, the perspective that so many people across this country really like, you know, for, for our generation since 9-11 have experienced, uh, but it goes back further than that. Those who served in the Gulf War and Vietnam and Korea and, you know, we just observed the, the 81st anniversary of, of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Those those who have seen and experienced the the ugliness and the tragedy and the harshness of war are often, not always, but often the loudest voices calling for restraint and calling for peace, calling for caution, uh, making sure that if we are going to war, um, that we are doing so to fulfill a mission that best serves the interest of the American people and our national security. Uh, this is not to say that, you know, you mentioned a few of our, our colleagues in Congress who served and they've deployed. And this is not to say that every one of us uh, agrees on every piece of foreign policy. Uh, but again, th- those who've had these experiences are often far more thoughtful about the approach that we take. More of my conversation with Tulsi Gabbard coming up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I've got so many memories of you from the time we served together, <laughs> but I'm going to touch on two of them. All you right. may not remember either one. I remember you being the very first person I ever heard talk about having a public advocate present during FISA court hearings. Yes. And, and I mean, you're sitting there talking to an old prosecutor who you know, was a trust the government, <laughs> trust law enforcement, and you were really nice about it. But the reality is <laughs> where many, many, many Republicans are now, you were there way before it became like fashionable to be there. So <laughs> what did you see that everyone else did not see? Um, maybe, maybe, maybe my, I, I do. I remember sitting next to you and having this conversation because because of your background, Trey, it was because of your background and your experience that I sought you out because I said, man, if I can, if I can convince him to join me on this bill and you did, um, then, then we have a hope of, of trying to make this change. And, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time in courtrooms admittedly, uh, but I do understand the importance of the constitution and the importance of freedom and civil liberties. And uh, that was my concern. And I was 
frankly surprised as I started to dig in just as, you know, a member of Congress learning more about the FISA courts, learning more about this whole process, that there was not someone in the room saying, okay, guys, how does this thing that you are asking approval for affect our constitutional rights and civil civil liberties? Um, whether it's something that may be a gross violation of, or maybe something that teeters on the edge of, and maybe we got to be really careful for. And so that was, that was the idea around making sure, Hey, we, we should, we should have some, just as you have in a courtroom, you've got the prosecutor and you've got the defense. Therefore you should also make sure that the people have that the people that we, the people have, have an advocate uh, looking out for our own, liberties when the government is coming in and making certain requests that could possibly infringe on those liberties. And just so our listeners understand, a FISA court and many, many other parts of particularly national security are what we call ex parte. You only hear the government side of it. There's no one there asking questions, demanding that you meet certain. um, So I give you credit for turning Turning the uh, the mind of an of a washed up old prosecutor and 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 I want I got to mention one <laughs> other I'm not going to call any names but it was circa 2016 if that tells you who you might possibly have been talking to you were talking to people on the floor of the house on your side of the aisle and clearly they mm-hmm. were not happy with you and if I were to call the names of the people these are some of the, <laughs> which time Trey these are some of the most <laughs> powerful people on your side of the aisle. And they are not happy with you. And I walk by and I'm terrified, even though they're not talking to me. And you (laughs) are completely unmoved. It is like it is you are unflappable. You're not mad in response. You don't respond in kind. You just were not moved by the fact that these powerful people were not happy with you. Do you? Yeah. I, I don't. Maybe you had more than one of those. Conversations. <laughs> I, you know, there are. Oh, I've had many. That's why I'm like, wait, 2016. I can think of five things probably in 2016. <laughs> That's not even going into the next year. <laughs> oh, it, it might have been somebody involved high up in the Democrat National Committee, possibly. Oh, I know exactly the conversation <laughs> you're talking about. I know exactly the conversation you're talking about. But you're um, on flat. I mean, you weren't afraid. Well, I mean, hey, I mean, let's talk about it. I, I will I will tell you what that conversation was about, because uh, it, it was a memorable one. It was about an immigration bill. It was actually but it was not about the, the presidential race that was happening that year. It was I, and I was vice chair of the DNC at the time. And uh, there was a big uh, immigration vote that was coming up. And while I don't remember the exact details of that specific vote, in reading the bill, it was a it was a Republican bill, and the Democrats were trying to get Democrats to vote against it. The Democrat leadership wanted Democrats to vote against it. And in my reading of the bill, I saw, hey, this this bill may actually help secure the border, and that's something that I care about doing. I think it's very important. And so I, you know, the, as you know, the, the leadership on both sides, they go around, they ask people, hey, how you plan to vote? And I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of voting for it. And as you can imagine, that caused some people's hair to light on fire just just on its face. First of all, let's just talk about that. Just on its face, like, oh, oh, my gosh, 
how could she even think about voting for a Republican bill, which says so much about what's so wrong in Washington. And I'm sure you guys have gotten it on your side as well on different issues. Uh, but it was just like, how dare you, first of all. So um, Steny Hoyer, who we both love, uh, is such a, a kind person. Uh, he came to talk to me about it. And uh, in that conversation, he's like, well, Tulsi, let me know. Like, I'm just curious. What, what's your thought process and why are you thinking of voting for it? And so I told him we, we were having a, a good substantive conversation about the content, not partisanship, but on the content of this bill. And then Debbie Wasserman Schultz came up and she was very angry. She was very upset. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea that you were in this in the space that you saw this go down. Um, she was very, very upset. And she shared she had a lot of words to say to me about why she was upset that I would even consider voting for this Republican bill on immigration. None of the things she said had anything to do with the substance of the bill. Um, but the gist of of kind of what she was getting across to me was, how dare you do this as a vice chair of the DNC? Don't you know this is going to have such a negative impact as vice chair of the DNC, meaning a negative political impact? Um, I'm fairly certain she wasn't concerned about negative political impact on me, but for the <laughs> DNC. <laughs> and when she said that, you know, because I, I, I stood there and I listened to what she was saying. Oh, as soon as she said that, <laughs> I I don't remember exactly what I said, but what I was trying to get across was, you don't know me at all. And I turned back to Steny Hoyer and we continued to have a substantive conversation on the legislation. And, and, um, you know, that there, there's, that's why I was laughing at the beginning of this. There's so many different interactions that I've had with with people and, and you know, the, the meaningful ones, the ones that are actually constructive are ones where you can talk and you may, we may not end up on the same side of an issue, but I will have walked away learning something more about the other person and where they're coming from. And they will have walked away learning more about why I was doing the thing that I was doing, but just, you know, the, the blind partisan strife and divisiveness and how dare you, you know, there, there was another day, uh, something, something was going on. Another big, another big vote had happened. And right after the vote happened, this is when John Boehner was speaker as, uh, he left, you know, he was, he was about to leave the house floor, walking down the middle of the aisle by the, by the big doors in the middle. I had seen him doing yoga that morning in the gym. And so as he was walking out, I said, speaker, good for you for doing yoga this morning. That was great lifted my hand, gave him a high five. He had a big smile on his face and he walked out. I turned around. There was one of our other colleagues, senior Democrat, scowling at me, scowling at me. Um, and as she walked away, I heard her talking to her age, like, how could Tulsi do that on a day like this with a boat like this? How dare she? It's like, come on, <laughs> give me a break. <laughs> I want you to forgive the shock on my face. It's the only part that shocks me is that Boehner was in the gym. That what the the fact well, that John yes. Boehner was in the gym <laughs> is the part. Oh, and Tulsi. then in the gym doing yoga. I mean, you, I walked in the gym that morning like this is 
hold on. <laughs> you were beloved by people on both sides of the aisle. And the fact that that that's maybe not good says more about the state of politics. Yeah. Uh, all right. There are two more things. I know you got to go. There are two more things I want to ask you about. One, because you're an expert on it. You changed my mind on FISA. I'm not into Twitter. I, I, I'm not good at that stuff. I'm not I'm not on it. When I think of Twitter, I think it's a private company. And if they want to prop up Democrats or prop up Republicans, they can do it. Just like New York Times, Politico, if they want to do it. But I feel like I'm in the minority that that maybe people, you're like two generations below mine, but people in your generation maybe see excessive entanglement between the social media companies and government. And it's not just like a private company, like Ben and Jerry's, that it's somehow right. different. So tell me what I should be focused on uh, as this debate kind of rages. I think the difference, the, the key difference, Trey, is um, the legal immunity that they received under Section 230, that they received this this protection that the New York Times and Politico do not have. Uh, as they are publishers, they're responsible for curating what they quote unquote print, whether it's online or on paper. Uh, and they are held legally responsible for the words they put on those pages or on their website. For, for some obvious reasons, if Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or these, these other social media platforms are the kind of public you know, digital, um, digital square, digital marketplace of ideas that they claim to be. Um, that was the concept I think behind section 230 is that they are a platform for people to go in and say what they want to say, period. Um, I can't do that with the New York times. I can't do that with any other uh, media platform. And and that's the real difference there is that when you look at how Twitter, for example, as we're seeing with the release of Elon Musk's release of these Twitter files, um, you know, we've obviously seen it from Facebook or Meta. Uh, we, we obviously see it a lot with Google. We see how these private corporations um, who are essentially monopolies, because there's no real competition, how they are using their platforms to uh, boost certain voices or messages in silence and censor others. Uh, and even more directly and dangerously, how they are doing this in order to influence our elections. Um, and as we're seeing more and more, there's evidence that they are not only doing this on their own to influence our elections, but they're doing, they have been proven to have been doing this at the behest of people who work in the White House, people who work in high positions of power in the government who say, hey, yeah, here's, here's a story we want you to kill or not cover, or here's, here's a voice we want you to silence, or here's a, an account we want you to restore. And so this, this is where um, it's incredibly dangerous to see this kind of abuse of power and how, you know, and I, I personally have been a, a, an advocate of of uh, breaking up big tech because these monopolies are, they are way too powerful and are virtually untouchable. I saw how they tried to uh, impact my own campaign when I ran for president. Um, I was the most searched candidate on the first presidential debate night uh, back in 2019. 
Uh, we had a Google ads account set up, hoping that that would be the case because not many people in the country or no one in the country really knew much about who I was if they knew me at all. So we hoped they'd be able to go on and you know type after the debate, hey, who's Tulsi Gabbard? Learn more about me. Well, Google uh, suspended our ad account with no explanation, wouldn't answer calls or emails or anything to tell us like, okay, what did we do wrong? Let's get this back up on track as quickly as possible to maximize this opportunity. Never got back to us at all. And then at whatever point they decided it made sense to them, our, our, our ad account was, was magically uh, restored. Um, there are so many different um, points of evidence of the bias that they have. For example, in sending a majority of uh, Republican candidates, uh, you know, email blasts to the junk folder while sending a majority of Democrats mass email blasts into people's Gmail inboxes. Um, Big tech, private corporations having this much power to directly influence people and control what information people are getting uh, is an incredibly dangerous thing. And they're doing it all with this legal immunity and protection covered by Section 230. It sounds to me like you have raised uh, two issues, both of which are supremely important. Control and then the equality within that control. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, Facebook, uh, Google, Twitter, incredibly powerful. We may have a hand in how powerful we allow them to be or make them. But your second point is fairness within that power. And right. whether or not you treat, which kind of gets, you've forgotten more about this than I will know. I noticed, I detected a difference in the way the print media treated you over the course of your career. You may <laughs> disagree with me. You may say no. I agree. So that to me is a fairness issue that you did not change one iota. You were always like that, but their coverage of you changed. Am I naive to have noticed that? Am I wrong? Not at all. Or did you see it? it? It was it was quite palpable, actually. Uh, it was a very, it was a very stark change in difference, uh, going from, you know, when I was first elected to Congress, there was a lot of excitement. Uh, and unfortunately it was, I mean, it was a lot of excitement essentially around, uh, the bullet points of my bio and kind of the, I say, unfortunately, because it, it, it really kind of focused on a lot of the superficial things rather than focusing on, on, um, the substantive things, the superficial things. Hey, look, she's a young woman. She's a woman of color. She's a veteran. She's, uh, this and that just going down the list. And for a time, a short time, there was a lot of excitement there, but, um, from the media as well as the democratic party. But very quickly, once people started to hear and listen to the things that I was saying, the issues that I was raising, um, you know, I think one of the first major ones happened uh, just barely six or seven months after I was sworn in as a member of Congress, when I was the first Democrat to come out in opposition to President Obama's uh, desire to go or his, his, his seeking authorization from Congress to go and bomb Syria. And it was exactly that kind of moment and situation that was why I ran for Congress in the first place. I went in and I did my research. I did my due diligence. I listened to all of the testimony from the administration, all of the, the closed and open door briefings and did not 
go in presuming uh, a decision, but made that my decision after doing the work uh, and came out in opposition to the president's proposal and saying why I thought it would be bad for our country and, and it would uh, undermine our own national security and get us into yet another quagmire of a war like the war in Iraq. And it was, it was after making that statement that I heard almost immediately back from the White House saying, how dare you do this? Not because they had disagreement on the substance of my argument against their position, but how dare you do this as a Democrat coming from the president's home state? How dare you come out in opposition to his plan? And from there, and it went on and on and on, there started to be that palpable shift, um, really because I think they recognized I was somebody who actually thought for myself and uh, wasn't going to just take their talking points and be a parrot for whatever the narrative of the day was, and, and that I was not afraid to step out and do what I believed was the right thing to do for the American people and the country, even if it meant going against what was popular or going against what the, the, the quote-unquote party uh, objectives were. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. One more story about you and then one more question, and then I will let you get back to work because this is actually the most amount of work that I do in a week. I do it for about an hour, and I know you're you're at a different. My number one favorite story actually involves President Obama. We're down in Charleston. It's the aftermath of the shooting at Mother Emanuel Church where nine uh, African-Americans were killed solely because they were black um, at a church um, and there's a memorial service. President um, Obama spoke there. He sang Amazing Grace. Tim Scott had family that went to Mother Emanuel, and he's in a room by himself. Uh, it's a, an incredibly uh, emotional, does not fully capture what was going on at the time. But you knocked on the door, and when he heard it was you, you came in. There were a lot of other people who knocked on the door that he did not want to see, but he wanted to see you. And you came in, and you ministered to him in a way— um, that I could not, and others could not, and the service began, and the place was packed, and I was sitting on the same row, and they began to sing songs that I was familiar with, because I grew up in that kind of a church, and I'm not much of a singer. I'm certainly not a dancer. You were participating as fully in that worship service as if you had grown up in that denomination, in that faith, and I said, well, that's nice of her, I guess. She, she's, you know, but it was more than just being nice. I mean, you really made an effort to say, okay, this is the worship service that I'm in, and I am going to fully participate. I know you remember being there because Hawaii is a long ways from Charleston, South yeah. Carolina, but what, what about you says, okay, this is a, a different faith group from what I grew up with. It's a different kind of worship style, but I am going to honor the people that were slain and my friends and participate in it as if I grew up in that culture. What, what allows you to do that? God and God's love. You know, no matter how we choose to worship or what name, you know, we choose to call God by, there is one God. Uh, he has many names. His love for each and every one of us is unconditional. And I will never forget being there that day because it was 
it was a day of such tragedy and sorrow for, especially for the families who um, had lost loved ones in that tragic shooting. But we all shared in that sorrow. And I was so moved by the words that I had heard from some of those moms uh, as they spoke of their sorrow, but most powerfully of their forgiveness, really, truly their forgiveness uh, in the wake of this incredible and unimaginable tragedy of having their loved one taken from them in church by a murderer. And there's only one place that that kind of forgiveness can come from. And that comes from God and his love. And, and so, you know, for me, I, I grew up, um, you know, my mom was, was uh, raised Methodist and then she found uh, the, the practice of Sadhana Bhakti through, uh, through Hinduism and and scriptures from India, my dad was uh, raised Catholic, and still he's a lector at his church in Hawaii. But they they um, you know, grow, growing up was inspired by and learned from and, and drew inspiration from really two main scriptures for me, and that was the New Testament and the Bhagavad Gita, which is um, a scripture that means Bhagavad Gita means the song of God. And it's an ancient Hindu scripture, but the essence of the New Testament and the Bhagavad Gita is essentially the same, which is um, encapsulated uh, with with Jesus Christ's first commandment. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your all your spirit. And and you know, this practice of Sadhana Bhakti it, it means developing a loving relationship with God uh, and trying to do your very best to be pleasing to Him. Uh, with your life and being able to in that setting and in praise and worship and um singing and and dancing and clapping about god's love uh is this it, it brought the same peace and comfort and joy to my heart that um that I have had and found throughout my life through my own spiritual practice, which is focused on, you know, on prayer and, um, you know, even, even singing different names of God and, you know, praise and worship in, in some ways. It's, it, so there's, th- this is the peace and, and, and comfort that I found when I was, um, when I was in Iraq and going to sleep most nights with mortar rockets um, uh, it was the comfort and peace that I found when, you know, uh, friends of mine were killed in combat. Um, it is the peace and comfort that, um, you know, came from God and these scriptures and God's names that, uh, kind of formed a protective shield around me in the swamp of Washington where you can't really trust anybody. Um, and, and it's, it's what brings me my, my deepest happiness now. Well, you've heard me say it, but I will say it again. I would tell people when we served together for those eight years, the most Christ-like person that I work with in Washington grew up in the Hindu faith from Hawaii. And that was true. So whatever name you want to call it, the teachings of Christ, she exemplified them. So... All right, before we both start crying, everybody wants to know, 
what you're going to do next. And I tell them all the same thing. She's got the greatest job in the world. She's a contributor on Fox News. What possibly could be better than that? <laughs> How far in the future do you oh, plan and do you see anything? I mean, you got a huge platform now. My father doesn't watch me that often on television, but he watches you every time that. you're on. I doubt that very much. Dad, dads are always dads. And I hear from mine. I hear from mine when he watches me and, and he says like, Hey, good job. And then I also hear when uh, he watches me and texts me, he's like, Hey, you used that word wrong in a sentence. <laughs> your gram, you need to correct your grammar, uh, honey. <laughs> well, see, my father would need multiple, uh, multiple iPhones to correct my grammar. He would need to like, be texting it at different times. I, I think you do great. I mean, has he never heard no. Lindsey Graham talk on television? Yeah. <laughs> he wants to correct someone's. Are you Are you happy where you are? He has my number. That's the that's the point. <laughs> I, I am I am happy because I'm I am uh, you know my my goal has always been as I've said it's it has been about how I can best be of service and how and where I can make the most impact. It has never been about a quote unquote political career. Those words have never even crossed my mind, and it's why at different times in my life, you know, I I have gone in and out of politics. Uh, you know, I served in the state house for one term. That's two years uh, before I knew to fulfill my duty where I needed to be was going and volunteering to deploy to Iraq and leaving the state house and what would have been a, a very easy reelection if I wanted to stay. Um, and so as as far as what's next, it will it will I will continue to to search for the answer to that question of how, how and where can I best be of service and make a positive impact. And, um, you know, the answer to that has changed and it's been different over time. Uh, I am maximizing opportunities to try to be a voice for freedom and the constitution at a time when both are heavily under attack, both within our government and without, uh, to be a voice of reason and common sense and to, to continue to, uh, put pressure on those who are in a position to make decisions about our national security and the safety security of the American people as wars continue to rage on. And, and I will continue to look for the best way that I can maximize the short time I have in life uh, to, to make that impact. Well, Tulsi Gabbard, you were beloved by those of us who knew you the best in Congress. And even more importantly than being popular or being loved, you were respected. So I can't Thank wait you. to see. I mean, when you keep talking about the short time, I keep thinking to myself, wait till you're my age. I mean, it's, it's I don't even like buy large jars of stuff anymore because I, cause oh, I come know. on. I don't buy green <laughs> bananas anymore. Tulsi. I don't know. You, uh, you That's good. Right. So bananas are better for you. <laughs> you. Well, I uh, I don't like no. salt bananas. That's the real reason. But we never know. So we got to make the most no, we don't. of whatever exactly. time we have. And Exactly. Thank you for your service to our country in every way that it has manifest itself. And I cannot, uh, like a doting old uncle, I can't wait to see whatever is next for you, if it's Thank anything. You. And if it's not, you don't have to be in elected office to, to make the world a better place. Yeah, we will see. All right. You take care of yourself. Uh, aloha. Thank you, my I hope friend. hope you get back home soon. It's so good to talk to you. 
Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.